Good morning to you. Okay, that was like three of you. Good morning. There you are. So glad that you're here today. Again, want to welcome every one of our campuses. Those of you joining us online, we're honored and privileged that you would take time in your busy schedule to be here and to tune in. We believe God has such a specific and special word for you. You know, we're in the midst of a very special weekend, Flavor Weekend. <laughs> Ladies in the house, we had um, an amazing Friday night and Saturday. I brought some of my new friends and old friends in. And, um, you know, the whole heart behind Flavor is that we would grow together in our journey with Jesus. Because if you don't know, when you place your faith in Jesus, which is the greatest decision of your life, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will be easy. It actually does not mean that. But what it does mean is that you will have hope in the midst of what life brings, right? So as we grow in this journey of life, we want to grow in our faith with Jesus, and we also want to make sure that we're connecting with one another. You were not meant to do life alone. Life is all about relationships, and those relationships that you put in your life are influential to your destiny. So that's what this weekend is about, is meeting some new friends and getting connected. And then, honestly, most importantly to me, the weekend is about influencing our world. And I would encourage you, even coming to church on a Sunday, it's not about just getting fed, but it's about what you're doing with what you've learned Monday through Saturday till the next Sunday. We're not about just consuming. We want to make a difference in the world, bringing heaven to earth, right? And if you've received the hope of Jesus, you want to be able to share it to help others. Um, I wanted to introduce you to one of my friends that we brought in for the weekend. I let her know on Friday that we'd never met before, but that she was my new best friend. And I'm pretty sure she's going to become your new best friend, but her name is Lisa Harper. And um, I have admired her from afar. You guys, my lashes are sticking together. It's embarrassing. I've admired her from afar for a very long time, but I'm going to tell you something up close and personal. She's on a whole nother level. She's so kind and full of humility and her love for Jesus just oozes out of every part of who she is. And really quickly, because I like to brag on my friends, I want to tell you really fast just a little bit about her. She's an author of 14 published books. She has an amazing podcast called Back Porch Theology. You need to check that out. She's got her master's of theological study. She's completed her doctoral studies, and she's now working on her thesis. So next time when she comes, we'll be calling her Dr. Lisa. And this is pretty special. She's spoken to over a million women with the Women of Faith Conference. She's been leading a neighborhood Bible study for 15 years. Still, to this date. We should applaud that. Because here's the deal. It was never about her being on the platform. It was about her being in community and studying God's word. And she's going to try to get me to be quiet. And I'm not done yet. She gives the best hugs. My favorite thing about her is her love for God's word. And you'll see that tonight, today. It's not tonight yet. I'm tired. <laughs> you'll see that this morning. And um, so I got to tell you one more thing, though, this weekend. We're such new best friends that she tattooed my name on her leg. And um, because I'm such a good best friend. So that's 
gonna be there until I shave it off. But um, I love you so much. You bring the word today. I love you so much. I need to make a confession. Usually really beautiful, blonde, thin pastors aren't my favorites. <laughs> and I have just fallen in love with your leadership here at LifePoint. You know, sometimes you go to churches and you think, I'm so grateful they love Jesus and I'm so grateful they don't live anywhere near me. And then you go places that you think if God were ever to move me in the vicinity of this house, I would walk to get there to be with them. And I have fallen pretty hard for y'all. Thank you. out and touch that saint next to you. Gentlemen, I know sometimes this is a bit of a stretch. Forgive me, this is just a little leftover estrogen from flavor. Um, but you know, during the time of Christ, men actually kissed one another on the cheek. There was much more um, affectionate, demonstrative behavior in a really healthy way in the house of God. And there are so many people who are never touched who never have somebody look them in the eye and just say, hey, how are you doing? And if anything, the house of God should be a place where you know you'll be greeted, yes. where you know that somebody here knows my name. Somebody notices if I'm not there. So would you just pray? You don't have to pray out loud if this is your first time at LifePoint or maybe your first time back in church in a long time. Don't, don't feel any pressure. You don't have to pray out loud. You can just pray silently. Or if you've never prayed to God, you can just go, Lord, reveal yourself to me in a way that I would recognize you. Those of you who know Jesus, pray for that saint on your right and on your left. Pray blessing over them. Pray that God would give them eyes to see more clearly who he is and how much he loves them. Pray that today some of the joy of their salvation would be quickened in their spirit. Pray, continue to pray what Pastor Daniel has already prayed over us, that today would mark us, that being together in a house of the Lord, that it would mark us, that we would remember whose we are. We would remember that we are precious we would remember Song of Solomon where it says, with one glance of our eyes, we have captured God's heart. You, you are the object of his affection. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We confess as your sons and daughters, it is so easy for us to get distracted by static in our minds and in our circumstances that we forget the melody that we should dance to. We, we forget that you love us with an everlasting love. We forget that no good thing will you withhold from us, not because we deserve it, but because you are so compassionate. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uh, be pleased to reveal yourself to us in a tangible way this morning. That we would, like David, be able to say, I have seen him in the sanctuary. It was just an ordinary Sunday in October, or so I thought. 
and God made the veil thin and I saw him. I'm convinced he was smiling at me. I sensed God wrap his arms around me for the first time in a long time. I stopped wiggling and I just leaned more fully into his, his embrace. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I pray you would be so, so palpable among us, Jesus, that we would find ourselves being tempted to take off our shoes. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, that you don't hold yourself at a distance from us, but you're an up-close, personal Savior. Forgive us for our preoccupation with things other than you. Give us eyes to see bigger, ears that would hear louder, and hearts that would be so pliant this morning that they would be fertile soil for whatever seed you choose to plant. We love you, Jesus. Have your way in this place, in our hearts, and our minds, in this community. Have your way, King Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. I um, wanted to tell you a couple of things. One is I am very informal. And so uh, Tammy very graciously said, I can just pretend like this is a big living room and, and that we can just all be together. And so if you can't see me, it's because I walked off that stage because I actually don't want you to see me from the waist down because I forgot my spanks back in Nashville. Um, uh, the bigger issue is I just want it to feel um, like the home that you are today. I want you to feel safe. I think sometimes, especially those of you who haven't been in a house of God in a long time, sometimes we kind of fashion church like it's elite. And it's not elite. Right. This is right. a place where we have a holy, transcendent God condescend to be close to us. This is a place where you should be able to exhale. It's a yeah. place where you should be able to lean back. I'm so yeah. grateful y'all have cushioned chairs instead of pews. <laughs> How many of y'all are 40 or over? Y'all yeah. know what a pew is. How many of y'all are under 40? They're long wooden benches. Very, very uncomfortable. You would get flat fanny-itis in your quest to be close to God. I love it more in a house like this that already feels informal, and I don't mean to in any way take liberty with God's word. Our God is a holy God, but he's not a rigid God. I was flying recently. I was flying from an event I'd been at in Grand Rapids, Michigan, back to Nashville, Tennessee, where I'm from, which is why it sounds like I was raised in a barn. And I was in a grumpy, grumpy mood because I get really sick of flying. Uh, for one thing, they have reconfigured the seats. to They're just for little girls. They're for keto girls. <laughs> really narrow seats. And after COVID, they're overselling all the planes. And so I just, I feel bitterness rise up in me right before I'm getting on a plane. And they had already announced in Grand Rapids that because of the weather, it was getting icy that we probably were not gonna fly to Chicago. I had a flight from Grand Rapids to Chicago, Chicago to Nashville. We probably weren't gonna actually fly to Chicago. They probably were gonna ground us in Grand Rapids, but they were gonna go ahead and load us on the plane anyway. And I thought, why are you gonna cram us on a claustrophobic aluminum tube and just make us sit there for hours on the tarmac? So I was feeling a little hateful. And so we, we get on the plane and it's one of those petite planes. We're all squashed on the plane. 
And my only hope was the seat next to me was empty. It was uh, one, one seat on this side, two seats on this side. And I thought, well, at least I have the seat next to me open. And then I noticed this older woman get on the plane. I don't know how she got past the gate agent because she had like five bags. And I thought, oh, I bet you Miss Geriatric sits next to me with all those bags. And sure enough, she bonks her way down the plane and she comes to where I'm sitting and she went, is this 12C? And I wanted to lie so bad, but it was lit over my head. And I said, yes, ma'am, it is. And so I helped her get her stuff in the overhead. And she got next to me and I put my earbuds in and I don't remember what I was reading, but I made it very clear. It's kind of universal, don't bug me language. I mean, I'd been almost Christian. I'd smiled at her after wear the bags, but then it was like, there's a line right here. You are right there, Granny. And so I'm reading whatever I'm reading. And, and she did not pick up on when I was laying down because next thing I knew, she's poking me on the shoulder. And I took an earbud out and I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, are you from Grand Rapids? And I said, no, ma'am. I mean, just if my mother had been on the plane, she would have spanked me. I was so rude. But I thought, you know, that's going to give her a hint. I do not want to talk. I do not want to make any conversation. I don't want to hear about your grandkids. I don't want to share the four spiritual laws. I just want to be crammed in this claustrophobic seat until maybe we make it to Chicago. Put my earbud back in. Maybe 30 seconds passes. I was like, you are kidding me. Granny is persistent. Uh, take my earbud now out. I was like, yes, ma'am. She said, are you from Chicago? said, no, ma'am. <laughs> and evidently my rudeness was exhausting because I fell asleep. And the reason I know I fell asleep is because she woke me up. I had fallen asleep on my tray table and my phone that I'd been listening to slid under my arm on the, down on the, the, below the seats. And she had picked up my phone very graciously and she was trying to put it back on my tray table under my hanging down part. And so she was, she was trying to scooch it under there and that's what woke me up. And so I look up and I see this beautiful geriatric concerned face trying to help me. And I was flooded with guilt. And I said, ma'am, I am so sorry. Took out my earbuds and I said, I'm sorry I wasn't talkative when you asked me if I was from Grand Rapids or from Chicago. I said, I'm actually from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm trying to get home to Nashville tonight. I said, uh, my name is Lisa. What's your name? And she said, my name is Agnes. <laughs> And I'm 83. And I was like, well, that's, that's so cool, Miss Agnes. I said, uh, are you from Grand Rapids or are you from Chicago? And she said, I'm from Grand Rapids. And I said, well, why are you going to Chicago? And she said, I'm not going to Chicago. And I was like, okay, I'll take the bait. I said, where are you going, Miss Agnes? And she said, I'm going to Mumbai, India. And I said, you're going to, I mean, I thought you barely got on this plane. How in the <laughs> world are you going to make it to India? And I said, well, why are you going to India, Miss Agnes? And when I said that, I may as well have asked Santa where he hid the toys. Her face just split into the screen and she said, I'm going to India to tell people about Jesus. Oh. 
And I was like, I'm going to be struck by lightning. Because I thought, I can't believe it. I'm sitting next to Jesus Jr. And I have been such a toot. I can't believe it. And so after she told me she was going to tell people about Jesus in India, I said, tell me your whole story. Miss Agnes, tell me how you became a Christian. What got you involved in missions? And she told me that she had come to Christ after she graduated from high school. She had married her high school sweetheart right after high school graduation, Jim. And they got pregnant very, very quickly. And she found out she was pregnant with twins, which was real overwhelming for her. I don't want y'all to worry a thing about those babies. I told first service, I became a mom through the miracle of adoption uh, the year I turned 50. And so I went through menopause and motherhood at the same time. So when I hear babies in church, it does not bother me at all. What bothers me? is the hateful look some of y'all give the mamas and the daddies. That bugs the fire out of me. And so don't worry about it. If the baby goes on and on, they'll take them out or you give them something to suck on or something in your purse. Maybe the parent needs that. But when I see Christians being mean to young mamas and young daddies, kind of like, I'm like, ooh, I pray you get irritable bowel, bowel syndrome. Um, <laughs> You know, I said hives earlier. I'm getting meaner, Pastor Daniel. <laughs> so anyway, she said that she and Jim got married. When she was concerned about carrying twins, she said she turned to a girlfriend who knew Jesus. That girl invited her to church, and that's where she met Jesus. When she came home and told Jim that she had found Jesus, he said, I don't want anything to do with religion. He said, I'm not going to go to church with you. Don't ask me to pray with you. Don't ask me to read the Bible. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, then about six months later, they found out one of the boys she was carrying had a very serious issue. And it was likely that one of her twins was, was not going to make it. And then Jim got scared. And she said, unbeknownst to her, Jim turned to a gentleman he worked with and said, I need help. I'm so worried about my unborn sons. And Jim came to Christ about six months after she did. And uh, they grew like weeds in their faith. Both twins were born. One was born very sick, but both twins were born. About five years after that, Jim came home from work one day and he said, Agnes, he said, honey, I think the Lord is calling us to plant a church. And she said, I don't know if you've heard of our church, Lisa. And then she named a church that I'd never been in, but I'd driven past, I bet you 15 times, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I said, Miss Agnes, I know exactly where your church is. And she said, God just did more than we prayed for. She told me about 40 years of being a church planner, of having that church. And she said, it was just unbelievable. And then she said, one of the boys had gotten married and she knew grandchildren were on the way. So she decided that she should build a, a room, an addition on their home. They had a pretty modest home so that the inevitable grandchildren would have a place to spend the night when they came over. And she said to save money, Jim and the boys decided they'd try to do the labor themselves. And during that construction process uh, project, there was an accident and Jim was killed. And not long after that, her boy who had been, been born sick, he passed away as well. And she said, Lisa, parents should never have to outlive their children. And I said, no, ma'am, I, I can't even imagine that. 
And she said, as a result of Jim's death and my boy's death, I just fell into this pit of despair. And she said, I really felt like my life was over. She said, I was in my early 40s and I was just like, my life is over. I said, 40 years of church ministry. I got confused. It was 20 years of church ministry. She said, I felt like my life was over. And she said, after a year of grief, the Lord came to the edge of my pit. And he said, Agnes, Jim was your husband, but he was not the love of your life. I'm the love of your life. And your son was one of your joys, but he wasn't your deepest joy. I'm your deepest joy. You've grieved long enough. It's time for you to get out of that pit because I've got a lot left for you to do. And she said, Lisa, I'm 83. Did I tell you I was 83? And I said, yes, ma'am, you did. And she said, since he pulled me out of that pit, I've been on 51. This is my 51st mission trip outside the continental U.S. She said, I love traveling and telling people about Jesus. And I said, oh, Miss Agnes, that's amazing. She said, the second half of my life has been so much more fruitful than the first half, and I never would have guessed it. She said, now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I said, yes, ma'am, ask me anything. And she said, well, I'm not sure where I'm going to be staying when I get to Mumbai in 25 hours. She said, and so if you feel so led, would you pray that God will make a way that I'll find a place to stay when I get to Mumbai? And I said, yes, ma'am, I will absolutely pray, but may I ask you a favor now? And she said, sure. And I said, may I pray for you now? I said, I'll tell friends of mine through social media to pray for you. We'll carry you the whole way to Mumbai, but can I lay hands on you now? Can I pray for you now? And she said, oh, that would be lovely. And so I turned toward this saint that I'd been such a toot to, you know, 15 minutes before. I lay my hand on her shoulder. She bows her head. And I realized before I started praying, the entire plane is listening to us. I thought, you could hear a pin drop. So I got the entire gospel into the prayer. I'm like, and you came, you came. And I did it. Major, major Pentecostal prayer. And I said amen right when we were landing at uh, O'Hare. And then I told Miss Agnes, I said, Miss Agnes, I think I've got just enough time to race you to the international concourse before I go to catch my flight to Nashville. I said, so if you want me to, I'll help you. She was like, oh, that'd be lovely. So we're standing in the gate and the jet bridge waiting for them to give her her bag so we can run to the international concourse. Y'all, 11, I counted, 11 people came off the plane and stopped and said, Miss Agnes, I just want you to know I'll be praying for you as well. We had revival up in O'Hare. It was so incredible. And as I was running, I had to to run. And at this age, you don't want me to run. Too many things are flapping. But I had to run (laughs) to catch my flight to Nashville. And the whole way I was running, I thought, you know, I'm not grumpy anymore. I don't feel jaded anymore. I want to be like Miss Agnes. I want to be all in when it comes to Jesus. That was the theme this weekend at Flavor. It was making waves. I think Martin Luther King said it best. He said, church used to be a thermometer, a a thermostat. Church used to be a thermostat. Church used to set the temperature of culture. He said, unfortunately, church has become a thermometer. Now all we do is take the temperature of culture. Tammy and the team's whole point this weekend was we need to affect 
culture in a way that culture changes. We need to affect culture with the glorious hope of the gospel. We need to be a little bit more like Miss Agnes. We need to be running hard toward Jesus in such a way that people around us, even on crowded plains, go, there's something different about him. There's something different about her. It probably won't look the way we thought it would look. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 marks a season during Christendom when the early Christians, they are cooking with gas, y'all. They are running so hard toward Jesus. They are a bunch of Miss Agneses. It is not an easy time to be a believer during the book of Acts. They're oppressed all the way around. They're actually being martyred, many of them, for their faith. Their kids are getting beaten up on the way home from school. If you remember high school history, Nero is one of the leaders at that time. And Nero told everybody else, based on early Christians practicing communion, he said they're a bunch of cannibals. They drink each other's blood because of communion. Then he blamed Christians for the fire that burned Rome in 70 AD. Y'all remember the colloquialism, Nero fiddled while Rome burned? That's not far from the truth. Nero was sliding in the polls. I'm not going to talk about politics here, but you all know some who are sliding in the polls. And he decided, I'm going to stir something up so that I get reelected. And so he decided, wow, Romans love their city. So I'm going to have some of my soldiers secretly set fires all around Rome while I'm away on a business trip. And then I'll come flying back in on a white horse and I'll fix it. We'll put the fires out and I'll be a hero and I'll be popular again. Well, his plan backfired, no pun intended. Word got out that he had actually intentionally set the fires and his numbers were sliding any further, even further. And he was like, what can I do? What can I do? And he thought, nobody likes Christians. We've got Jews, we've got pantheists, it's a polytheistic culture. Nobody, nobody likes, likes Jews, and they really hate Jewish Christians. So I'll blame it on the Christians. I'll blame it on the Christians. I've already made almost everybody believe they're cannibals. I'll say that the Christians set fire to Rome. So it is a tough time to be a Christ follower. Sound familiar? Really tough time to be a Christ follower. But instead of backing up, which would have made sense, they made waves, huge waves. Acts chapter eight, Stephen has just been stoned for having the simple audacity of saying God loves you. For simply saying, holy God condescended to make a way for us to be reconciled to him. Simply for sharing the gospel, Stephen was stoned. Y'all, that's not Hebrew hyperbole. He was stoned. People carried rocks like you would line your garden with. Those of you who like to garden, I love to garden. I love going to the place where they sell rocks and I put as many rocks as I can in my little trailer, hook it to my car, and I drive home. I love stones. I love stone work. They would bring stones. They would gather in a circle. And if they believed someone was a heretic, they would throw those stones on the person in the center of the circle. He was literally crushed to death by rocks. I mean, that's a horrific way to die. Horrific way. They still do it in some hyper-Muslim uh, hyper circles in the Middle East. 
they still do that. It's a, it's a degrading kind of a death. That's how Stephen is killed. The early church sees this. One of Stephen's BFFs is a guy named Philip. It was a small leadership team at the time. What would make sense after Stephen's death at the top of Acts chapter 8 would be for them to all go, you know what, let's kind of back the bus up. Let's kind of go on the down low. Let's have some secret tattoos. Let's have small groups, but let's just kind of meet in basements. We're going to wait till this whole anti-Christian thing dies down. Or you and I, I mean, we're not just going to make waves. We might get murdered. I'm not so sure. We should be as vocal as we are right now about the love of Christ. That's not what happens. They get louder. They get louder under just this incredible oppression and animosity. They get louder. Here's what happens next. First, Philip goes to Samaria, very unlikely place to share the gospel. And then verse 26 is where I want to land. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. I want you to get the full picture of what's happening. They're in a big city. And the angel of the Lord comes to Philip, who's already seen his best friend get beaten to death, and says, I want you to take a, a secondary road. You're not going to be able to get uber black on this road. There's going to be no exits with Starbucks on this road. I want you to take a secondary highway, and I want you to take that secondary highway that's uncomfortable. I want you to go on that secondary highway at the most uncomfortable time of day. It's the Middle East, and it's midday. You should be inside in air conditioning watching Netflix. Binging on Yellowstone, but don't tell your church friends because it's nasty. <laughs> Got some of y'all with that one, didn't I? <laughs> this is going to be uncomfortable, Philip. It's not going to be a real smooth highway, and it's not going to be the time you want to go. It's an uncomfortable way, and it's an uncomfortable time. And I want you to go that way, and then I want you to share the hope of the gospel with an Ethiopian. Now, y'all live an hour from the Beltway. Y'all are like, oh, cool. cool. It's multicultural. This is awesome. <laughs> you got to read between the lines. When he says, I want you to find an Ethiopian, and I want you to share the gospel to him, he specifies that's an Ethiopian eunuch. Tammy, I'm going to have you read a verse that you probably haven't cross-stitched. Will you please read Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1? Because we read these stories as if they're uh, fables. These aren't fables. These are real people living at a real time and space who needed a real God. There really was a dude named Philip who's grieving the loss of his friend who had been murdered. There really was an Ethiopian, a black, my daughter's from Haiti. I'm so stinking proud. My daughter's from Haiti. It's all I can do not to wear matching outfits. 
But we live an hour north of where the KKK was founded. And so I cannot tell you how many times I've received some filthy language, filthy looks, some horrible things scrolled on notes and put on our car because there's a bunch of people where I live who don't think a woman with straight hair should have a beautiful kid with curly hair. And such is the case with an Ethiopian in Jerusalem, but this wasn't just an Ethiopian. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. So read Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, Tammy. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Of Lord, she read the sanitized version, um, a word that starts with T and rhymes with resticles, is in another version. When people tell me the Bible's boring, did you skip over that word? No, ma'am, it is not in this one. When people tell me the Bible's boring, I'm like, you are kidding me. This is more colorful than Jerry Springer. This is amazing. The point here is an Ethiopian eunuch, hear me, is not allowed in church, not allowed in church. And the angel of the Lord says to Philip, I want you to take an uncomfortable route during an uncomfortable time of day. And I want you to share my love with a gentleman. Everybody else would ostracize that actually say in the law, he's not allowed in church. And do you know what Philip's response was? He ran. He ran. My parents divorced when I was five years old, and it was a very ugly, very acrimonious divorce. And uh, like most kids of divorce, I thought it must be at least partly my fault. If only I'd been prettier, been sweeter, used my inside voice more, maybe dad wouldn't have left us for another woman and her child. And I began to pray that God would send me a new dad, a dad who wouldn't leave. That's actually how I came to know Christ. Uh, We left the church that I grew up in because there was a lot of gossip disguised as prayer requests after my parents' divorce. And so my mom moved us to a new church. And the very first Sunday in that new church, Brother Jimmy talked about how our Heavenly Father is a dad who doesn't walk away from his children. And um, so I walked forward to give my life to Christ when I was just itty bitty, I was five years old. Um, I didn't understand it all. I couldn't imagine how a God like that could actually delight in a damaged girl like me. So I just resolved to be a good girl to kind of keep my head down and follow the rules. Uh, Soon after that, my mom started dating a man named John Angel. And I just loved him from the beginning. He's a really big guy played football for University of Florida, broad shoulders, big blue eyes. My mom was never ready when he came over for dates. And so he would bring me bazooka bubble gum. Daniel, do you remember bazooka wrapped in the cartoons? And we were really poor after the divorce. And so it was a big deal that he'd bring me, oh, I don't know, like 50 pieces of bazooka in a brown paper paper bag. And then he'd say, Lisa, I want you to make your elbows real straight and firm by your side. And I'd be like, yes, sir. And then he'd put his hands under my elbows and he'd lift me because he was so strong all the way up over his head. Like he'd just do like a bench press with me. And he'd put that on my eHarmony profile. Um, <laughs> Any man who can lift me off my feet 
you're in, baby, you're in. But I thought that was so cool that John could lift me up so high. So I was thrilled when mom told me they'd fallen in love and they were getting married. I was eight years old, uh, almost eight. I was seven and three quarters when they went on their honeymoon and they came back from their honeymoon late at night. I was already asleep. And the next morning I was starting the second grade and I was so excited to have this new dad, just so excited that God had answered my prayer that I was gonna have a dad who stayed. And that first morning that he was officially my dad, we had breakfast. I remember mom made bacon because that was a big deal. We didn't have enough money for bacon back then, so it was a huge deal she made bacon. I still love pork products. And <laughs> we had this round kitchen table and mom prayed a prayer and right after she said amen, I reached for a piece of bacon. And when I did, my brand new daddy, John Angel, took his butter knife and he whacked me over the knuckles. And he said, Lisa, girls don't eat bacon because bacon will make you fat. And men don't like fat women. And I remember thinking something along the lines of the man who dated my mom is very different than the man who just moved into our home. And I won't take the time to tell you what the next uh, 10 years were like, but suffice it to say, he didn't love me the way I had begged God to send me a dad to love me. When I was a senior in high school and I told him that I was not gonna go to med school, I don't know if I would have gotten in, but that was his dream for me. I told him I felt led to go into ministry. He took my Bible, an old NIV Bible, it was raining, I grew up in Central Florida, and he pitched my Bible out the front door into the yard, and he said, I don't want this bull blank in my house one more day. And he said, yours is the biggest waste of a mind I've ever seen. Um, he was a vehement agnostic. Um, I just wanted him to love me. You know how it is with daughters and daddies. In 2010, I got a phone call from my aunt Darlene and she said, Lisa, I'm so sorry to call you and tell you this, but um, John just suffered a stroke and it looks really bad. You need to come back to Orlando. I live in Nashville, my parents are still in Orlando. You need to come back home as quickly as you can because it's not looking good. I was at a women's conference in Denver, Colorado. And so I caught a flight, <clears throat> got to Florida as quickly as I could. As soon as I got there, I called and my aunt Darlene said, you're not gonna believe this but he has pulled through. He's regained most of his movement and all of his voice. They're saying they're gonna release him from the hospital in two days. And sure enough, two days later, they released my dad from the hospital. I was sitting across the kitchen table from him. And he said, now, where did you come from to get here? And I said, I was at Women of Faith, Dad. And he said, now, what's Women of Faith? And I said, well, Dad, remember it's that... Um, big women's conference I go to where we talk about how much God loves us. And he said, oh, that's good. When my dad said, that's good, you could have knocked me over with a feather because the only time I'd ever heard my dad even say God's name, it was followed by the word D-A-M-N. So for him to say a Christian women's conference like flavor was good just slayed me. And then I realized my mom was going like this behind my dad's shoulder and so I excused myself from my father and I walked over to my mom and she said, come here, I've got a, 
I've got to take you downstairs and show you your dad's office. We went down in the basement where even though he's retired, he still kept a desk. My dad was a very bright man. He was in the school system, superintendent in the school system. And she said, honey, she pointed to his desk. It was covered with Bibles, like eight Bibles on his desk. And she said, that's all your dad has been reading for the last several months. And my mom turned to me and she said, honey, I think your dad has become a believer. And I thought, oh, my sweet, precious mama. You know, she is so exhausted in caring for him because he is so difficult that she is probably smoking medicinal pot, you know. <laughs> and there's no stinking way my dad has become a believer. He's just, uh, he's, he's too mean. He's too prejudiced. He's too prideful. There's no way he would say he couldn't make it by himself. And she said, why don't you go back upstairs and ask him to read the Bible? Because I think if you ask him, he will. And I thought, really? But I love my mom. I really respect my mom. So I said, yes, ma'am. I went upstairs and I said, hey, dad, would you mind reading the Bible to me? And he said, why? And I was like, there's my dad. <laughs> and I said, because it's my favorite book and yours is my favorite voice. And he said, okay. And again, you just could have knocked me over with a feather. My mom brought him a Bible. He was sitting in this big blue lazy boy. Tammy, I don't know if your daddy still has one of those, but you know one of those old lazy boys. Sitting in a lazy boy, mom put the Bible in his lap. He opened the Bible and I real quickly flipped to John 14 because I thought if this is the only time I hear my dad read God's word, I want him to say what Jesus said, which is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If any man comes to me, then they can meet God. Not that I have control issues or anything. <laughs> and so my dad started reading at John 14. And y'all, he read all the way through John's gospel. I have it saved on two hard drives because I still sometimes when I'm in a difficult season or I'm having a hard time and I get stuck and I forget how good our God is, I'll pull out those hard drives and I'll put it in my computer and I'll watch my dad read the word of God. The only time he stopped in that whole recitation of the second half of John's gospel was right toward the end. When you read in John's gospel after the crucifixion, uh, after the resurrection, but prior to the ascension, when Jesus is still revealing his resurrected body to some of the followers, and he encounters Thomas. Do you all remember that? And Thomas says, how can I know that it's you and not a ghost? And Jesus says, touch my hands. Touch the nail prints in my hands, Tom. You'll know it's me. When my dad got to that part in the story, I interrupted him. And I said, Dad, do you believe and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, Dad, you're, you're really bright. You're really analytical. You're a lot like Thomas. And Thomas had to encounter a, a, an incarnate Christ, a flesh and blood Jesus before he believed. And I said, Dad, you, you haven't had that privilege. You've never engaged with the flesh and blood Jesus. And I said, so it would take a lot of faith for you to believe that he's the son of God, that, that he's your only hope. I said, do you believe and he paused for it was probably only 15 seconds, but you know, felt like 15 minutes. And he looked at me, my dad had big blue eyes, and he said, yes, I do. Wow. It was just unbelievable, unbelievable. 
I got to spend a couple of days with my dad, and he was different. He was singing hymns I didn't know he knew. He was kind to my mom. He wasn't abusive. I was just kind of slack-jawed over it. I had to go back to work. Eight weeks later, I get another phone call from my Aunt Darlene, and she goes, Lisa, I am so sorry to call you again, but John is back in the hospital. This time, it's a series of strokes, and this time, it does not look like he's going to recover. She said, you need to get back to Orlando as quickly as you can. I was at Women of Faith in Sacramento, California. Took me almost 24 hours. There were delayed flights, canceled flights. I finally got to Orlando. When I landed at the Orlando airport, I called the hospice nurse. My dad hates hospitals, didn't want to die in a hospital. So we had a hospital bed in the house, hospice nurse. She got on the phone and she said, sweetie, I'm so sorry. She said, your dad lapsed into a coma hours ago. She said, you're not going to get to talk to your dad, but he's fading fast. And so if you want to see him before he passes, you need to get here as quickly as you can. The airport in Orlando is about an hour from where my parents live. And my Aunt Jeanette was driving, and she is such a nana. I mean, just like, Um, I mean, I was just like, get me to the house. When she pulled into my parents' driveway, I jumped out of the car while it was still rolling. And I go running through the house. Dad was in a back bedroom. The nurse had told my mom that hearing is the last thing to go. So she yelled at my dad the last day or so of his life. And when she saw me running down the hallway, she went, John, Lisa's here. (laughs) At that point, he had been in a coma for 21 hours. But against all odds, my dad opened his eyes. And then he rolled over. And he went like this. (laughs) And I ran across the room and I got down on my knees in front of my dad. And the very last thing my dad ever said before he stepped from this body into the arms of Jesus is this, I love you, Lisa. Completely coherent. And I thought, how kind, how kind of our king They saved my father. I'd given up hope. I'd written in a Bible, um, may I not rest until my father finds rest in me. I prayed for my dad every day until I was 40 years old. And then something just hardened in me when I was 40. And I stopped praying for my dad. It It was too painful. So it wasn't because I was such a great witness. I wouldn't make it any more waves in my dad's life, not redemptive waves anyway. But our God is so kind. He's so kind, he's so kind, he's so kind, he's so kind. He saved my father. And then because he is an eternally compassionate father, he knew that my broken heart still needed closure. And he kept my dad alive long enough to give me closure so that I could hear my dad say I loved you. I thought, gosh, how kind of the Lord. He didn't need to do that. And he did that just for me. He's such a good God. We don't make waves because we have the personality to be disciples. We make waves because while we were still sinners, God loved us. We're so undone by his kindness that like Miss Agnes, we can't help 
sharing the hope that's been lavished upon us with somebody we get to rub shoulders with. I want you to pull a piece of paper out of your wallet or out of your purse. Doesn't have to be special. It can be a gum wrapper, deposit slip. Just make sure all the numbers aren't on there. Get a scrap of paper. If you don't have any paper in your purse in your wallet, raise your hands. They'll give you a scrap of paper. And what I want you to do, we are over. I've been very long-winded. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace. Hang with me for just another 30 seconds. I think this is important in the life of Life Point. Not what I say, but what God's gonna do. I believe you are already a thermostat. But I believe God is gonna turn up the heat in this region in ways that some of you haven't even prayed for. I believe you're gonna see salvations of people you love that you've stopped praying for because it's just too painful. Whoever in your story you love, but they do not yet know the love of Jesus Christ, would you write their name on that piece of paper? Don't write their email, don't write their phone number, don't write their last name. This is between you and the Lord because some of y'all have grown weary in well-doing and you stop praying for your daddies yes. and you stop praying for your ex-spouses and you stop praying for your prodigals because it's just been so long. And you're in that place of hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's life points, pure joy, as well as the calling of this community to pray with you and for you, to carry these people to the mercy seat, to carry these people with you when you don't feel like you can carry them anymore by yourself. So we're gonna ask you to write the names of people that you love. Maybe they've hurt you like my dad, but you want them to know Jesus. You still want them to know Jesus. Would you just write their first name on that slip of paper, just their first name. If you're sitting next to a nosy Nancy and they're looking at what you're writing, usually a sharp elbow to the ribs works wonders. <laughs> this is between you and Jesus. And then I want you to fold that piece of paper in half. It may be two or three names God brings to mind of people you love. They may not have loved you well. They may have eviscerated your heart, but you desperately want them to know Jesus. You so want them to know Jesus. Write their name or names on that paper. And when you finish that, fold that piece of paper in half. And pastor's gonna come forward and he's gonna give you some directions because we're gonna take up every single scrap of paper. And the prayer team at LifePoint is gonna pray by name for every single one of those image bearers. And what we are gonna believe collectively as a body is that six months from now, a year from now, a year and a half from now, a week from now, y'all gonna come up to Pastor Tammy and Pastor Daniel and go, I've gotta tell you what happened. I, I'd stop believing. It was just too painful to believe anymore. But my dad found the Lord. My dad found the Lord. My son found the Lord. My ex-husband yes. is crazy about Jesus. I can hardly believe it. I have to tell you what God has done. Thanks for joining us for today's message. Feel free to rate, 
review, and share with a friend. If you'd like to find out how you can get involved or partner with us financially, visit lifepoint.org or download the LifePoint app. Thank you for your generosity. We can do so much more together than we ever could apart. See you soon.